0: Ikea. I think most homes in Sydney probably have a piece of Ikea furniture. Uh, it's one of the most popular stores, pop furniture stores in the world. Great ideas, great designs, good prices. But for many people the big problem is the self-assembly. The dreaded Allen key and the instruction guide. It's easy enough to get the flat pack home, fits in your car, but the difficult part is putting it all together following the page after page of instructions, making sure you use screw B instead of screw A, and it goes in hole C instead of hole D, and making sure you don't end up with too many unused pieces left at the end, and then making sure it doesn't fall apart when you use it for the first time. Apparently there are now people you can pay to assemble your IKEA furniture for you. It's a niche market I think. Well, if it's this hard putting furniture together, imagine how hard it is to build a church. What we really need is an instruction guide. And that's what we've actually got here in Paul's letter of 1 Timothy. Instructions on how to put together a church step by step. Paul's the master builder, Timothy's one of his apprentices Uh, and verse 3 gives us a little background into the situation. Paul's business is building churches. Cities all over the known world, he arrives in a city, he preaches about Jesus, people become Christians and that's the kernel of a new church, he makes sure there are suitable leaders in charge and then he moves on and he begins the process in the next city. In this case the city's Ephesus and Paul has moved on to the next spot, to Macedonia and he sent Timothy there to keep the work going, to keep building the church. And this letter is his instruction manual. The things that he's to prioritise, what his strategy is to be, how he's to handle the different sorts of people that he'll lead. It's a guide for church leaders, but it's for the church as well. It's for everyone really, it's for us as well. It tells us how we should lead and who we should look to as leaders and the sorts of goals we should all be working on together. If you want to build a church the right way, we need to follow the instructions and instruction number one, the top of the list, is to teach the truth. That doesn't sound too exciting but there it is, teach the truth. The first part of that verse 3 means you have to stop the false teaching. Before Timothy can make any progress at all, he has to stop the rot. Before he can start teaching the truth, he has to stop the lies and the two often go together. Wherever you're trying to teach the truth, there'll be inside opposition. Because Paul's not talking about people who are outside the church slinging mud, he's talking about people who are inside. These people are arguing and debating and getting tied up in all sorts of technicalities and all they do is end up in stupid arguments. There in verse 3 we read, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, these promote controversies rather than God's work which is by faith. It's like a building. If it's not built on the right foundation, it won't stand. And if you're building a church, you need to build it on the foundation of solid doctrine, on what God says rather than what people think, on truth rather than lies and distractions and irrelevancies and speculations. To build a church strong we don't need the latest idea that we brought in from the business world. We don't need last month's uh, popular conference. We don't need the latest top seller at Kurong. We don't need someone giving us a few thoughts on a poem they read or a newspaper editorial or some song lyrics from the top 40. A lot of that can be just like we've seen here in Ephesus, human speculation. What we need is the rock solid foundation of truth that only comes from God's word. Now standing firm like that takes a bit of courage. Uh, For a guy like Timothy that probably would have been hard from what we can make out. He was timid, he was young, perhaps a little sickly. He needed to take a a bit of wine for for his stomach he wasn't the sort of bloke perhaps people would naturally look to for leadership. It would be tempting to move on from just teaching the Bible, if you were Timothy, to look for something more exciting. People think they've heard it all before, they need to hear something new and different. It's not much different today, really, in the culture that we're living in. People used to stimulation, low involvement, high stimulation. There's not a lot of reading that seems to happen. used to be you'd get on a train or a bus and people would have books. You hardly ever see anyone with a book open these days. And it seems like it was tough for Timothy as well uh, because what he was up against sounded impressive. It sounded religious. It sounded wise. After all, they all what they wanted to do was teach God's law. What, what could be wrong with that? But Paul tells us the problem in verse 7. They're just the blind leading the blind. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Seems like they had a bit of charisma as well, which probably made it even more difficult for Timothy. They want to be experts, but they don't understand the Old Testament at all. It seems like they think the Old Testament was a guidebook for how to, how to be righteous. They thought the Christian life was about keeping a set of Old Testament rules. And when you get the Old Testament law wrong like that, you miss the whole point of the Gospel. Because Jesus came to fulfil the law, to keep it fully, so that we don't have to keep it fully. He came to set us free from keeping it fully because we can't. The real news to be preached is good news. But the message that these guys were preaching, well, it was bad news. It was follow this rule, do this, jump this high, and then maybe God will let you through. That was their message. They'd misunderstood the Old Testament law. Verses eight to eleven. Uh, verses eight to eleven. It's it's for something else entirely, says Paul. It's to show sinners how far short they've fallen. It's not for people who think that they can be righteous by doing it. It's not for people like that. It's not for people that who think they're not sick. It's for sinners. It's for rebels, it's for those who recognise that they're not righteous. Do you see it there in verse eight? We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law was not was made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels and so on. The law is no use for people who think they're good. It is not a wall plaque that you put on your office wall. It's not an award that goes straight to the pool room to celebrate everything that you've achieved. It's not a checklist or a shopping list that you tick off to make sure you have covered everything. That's what the false teachers thought. But that's getting the law wrong. But Paul says there is a good use for the law Firstly, it's a big pointing finger that aims straight at sinners and that's all of us. The law shows us our complete helplessness, our complete sinfulness. The law says to us, you can't keep me, not even for one day. You can't make it on your own. You can only please God through Jesus. That's what the law says to us. The law is the searching spotlight that shines its holiness into our grubby lives. The law is a spotlight. The law is also a stop sign. That's another good use for the law. It stops sinners who naturally want to sin. It stops us before we go too far. It stops society before it goes too far. The law says stop. There's danger ahead if you keep going in this direction, there are consequences. The law is a spotlight, the law is a stop sign. They're both good uses for the law. Thirdly, the law is a signpost. It actually shows God's children the best way to go. You see, once we are a child of God, by faith the law says to us, do you want to know how to please God your Father? This is what you do. This is how you please him. John Calvin said this about the law. By frequent meditation on it, believers will be aroused to obedience and be strengthened in it. Indeed, it's in this joyous obedience that authentic Christian freedom is to be found. That's lovely, isn't it? Meditate on it and believers will be shown how they can please God and be strengthened in, in doing that. It doesn't make you a Christian. It's what Christians do once, uh, once they're Christian, how to please the God who saved them. The law is good if we use it properly. Uh, it's good if we use it as a searchlight, if we use it as a stop sign, if we use it as a signpost. In fact, Paul gives himself as a great example of what the law does. It seems to be one of the purposes of this little autobiographical note. Uh, Paul gives us a few of these little hints into his life and they've all got a purpose. Uh, Here he seems, I think, to to compare himself to the false teachers. Uh, He used to be like the false teachers. He used to think he was righteous. He even defended God's honour by persecuting Christians. But then then Jesus showed him how wrong he was. Verse 13, he, he says he, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. That's interesting. That's when he thought he was his most righteous. But now he looks back on it and he calls himself, verse 15, the worst of sinners. Now there's no way the false teachers are going to admit that about themselves. And yet, as Paul describes what he was, there's great joy in that. There's great truth in that message because Jesus came into the world to save sinners like Paul. It's wonderful news. He showed his unlimited patience to Paul so that others would also receive eternal life. And that's the second part of teaching the truth. We teach the truth by stopping false teaching, but we also need to proclaim the good news. The false teaching is only bad news. It's all about what people have to do, the list they have to tick off. But the wonderful news that Paul has experienced and preaches is forgiveness in Jesus, which is great news. And it's all about not what people have to do, but about about what God has done. Skim your eye down the list of Paul's uh, biography here his autobiography about everything God has done for him. Verse 11, the glorious gospel. In verse 12, Jesus has given him strength and appointed him into service. Verse 13, he's been shown mercy. Verse 14, grace has been poured out on him abundantly. Verse 15, Jesus saves sinners. Or 16, he's been shown mercy and patience. He's received eternal life. It's all about what Jesus has done and nothing about what Paul himself has done. That's the message that Paul's to be preaching. It's funny, you know, people think it's depressing, it's bad news, it's terrible for your self-esteem to be told that you're a sinner. We shouldn't do it. Uh, in the scripture in schools debate a couple of years ago, that the anti-scripture people thought it was a terrible thing that school scripture teachers would be telling little kids that they were sinners who needed forgiveness. Terrible for the little darling self-esteem. But when you know it's true, when you've seen the depths of sin in your own heart, in your hidden thoughts and attitudes and you realise that you're powerless to do anything to wash yourself clean and you hear the news about free forgiveness, well that's the best news you'll ever hear, isn't it? It's not bad news at all. There's a joy that Paul experiences that keeps him speaking that message. It's what keeps him doing it year after year. Keeps him doing it beating after beating. It still amazes him. He finishes with that song of praise in verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, invisible, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. That's what keeps him going, grace. In ministry you very quickly run out of energy and enthusiasm if your message is theoretical, if it's knowledge to be passed on. It needs to be good news that you've experienced before you can pass it on to anyone else. Does the Gospel have that effect on you? Is it good news to you? If it's not good news to you, it's not going to be good news to anybody else. Well that's step one of building the church, teach the truth. The second step of building a church is to encourage godly living. Encourage godly living. You can see the sort of thing that Paul's on about back up in verses 4 and 5. The the false teachers promoted uh, trouble, uh, and yet the opposite of that, God's word is by faith. God's work is by faith. But look at what he says next as he describes what that faith produces. The goal of this command, he says in verse 5, the thing you want to achieve by shutting up the false teachers is not some other debate. The goal is love. Love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what you want to be encouraging. Teach the truth, encourage that sort of living. God's work, God's goal is that Christians aim for love. Love that begins with faith. Faith in God's forgiveness, in God's grace through Jesus. It's love that will come from a pure heart and a good conscience. When God cleanses you on the inside and does it for real, forever, in a way that law keeping can never do, Love can be true and genuine. You have a new nature and a new heart and you can love people for real with no ulterior motive of earning favours with God. Love that works for the good of others simply because you belong. You belong to Jesus. Paul describes uh, love that comes from a sincere faith. It's literally faith that's unhypocritical. It's faith which has accepted grace and then offers grace. It's faith which is genuine, that is not demanding payment for work done, but is happy to accept God's gifts. It's love that's given because you know you've received love. See, it's the Christian gospel which is the only effective fuel to love people. The Christian gospel is the only effective fuel to love people. Other religions love because they're trying to earn something. They'll do good work because they hope that they'll get karma or they'll be reincarnate good karma, or they'll be reincarnated to, to a better person or, or they'll earn favour with God or they'll make it to paradise. So we have to do this. We have to love someone. Uh, the humanist, the secularist does it maybe out of pride or genuine goodwill but they're summoning it up out of their own internal resources. But the Christian doesn't love from those motivations. The Christian loves because she has been loved. That's the motivation, that's the fuel. The Christian forgives because she's been forgiven and washed clean and accepted. And now she wants to please God and follow Jesus. That's fuel that will keep you loving through a lifetime love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the sort of godly living, the sort of love God wants this church to be producing. How are we going at that? Are we growing in that? Well, Paul encourages Timothy and us to keep teaching those truths. Down in verse 18 he says, Fight the good fight. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. Don't give up. Keep teaching. Keep encouraging godly living. And he uses himself as an example to show us what God's done in him. If he can do it in Paul, well, he can can grow it in anybody. The logic is like those ads on TV. They get the dirtiest, most stained shirt you can find and then they soak it in the new, improved nappy sand and see what happens. And the logic is, well, if it can get stained out of this shirt, well, it's going to work on your things. And Paul says it's, that's how it is with him. He says, he was the worst there was, verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This isn't false humility. This is accurate. You've only got to read bits of the uh, the book of Acts to, to find that out. But Paul is saying... God did a miracle in me. I was running hard in the opposite direction when I was knocked on my back and turned around. I was the worst. If God can do that to me, well, he can do it to anyone. If he can wash this dirty shirt clean, then he can wash anybody clean. Verse 16, he says, For that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners... Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him. If Jesus will forgive Paul, then surely he can forgive anyone. Now, it may be that today, for you, that is the best thing you have ever heard. Perhaps you've messed up, you've ruined large areas of your life and as you look in the mirror you can barely stand to look at yourself. And you hear that one of the greatest Christians of all time says, it's okay, I was the worst. Look how much I've been forgiven. That's why Jesus came, to save sinners like me. If he can forgive me, then he can forgive you. He's got unlimited patience, far more than you or I would have with sinners. So never think that you're beyond forgiveness. No one is too far gone. So maybe you're looking at sin in a mirror or maybe you're looking at sin from the other side. Maybe you're looking at someone you know who is so rough or so wicked or so hard or so far gone or so bitter that you give up on them. And you think, well, why am I bothering? God could never make that person a Christian. Well, maybe there's a different sort of person you think is too far gone. The happy, contented, rich, successful, gifted person. And you think, well, what would they need God for? I'm almost embarrassed to raise it with them. They've got everything. <coughs> Whenever we think like that, we're forgetting Paul. <laughs> if God can save Paul, he can save anyone. Anytime. There's no way that you can say, no way. So don't give up. Don't stop praying. God can do amazing things with anyone. And if you keep your eyes open around here, you'll gradually start to see it too. God's grace at work in people's lives. Most of the time it's probably not going to be like Paul. Won't be a flash of light on the road. It probably won't be someone who is at the far end of society. But it will be genuine. It'll be real, it'll be the result of normal people like you talking to normal people like your friends and you living like Jesus and loving from a sincere heart. That's the way God works. Paul tells Timothy to stick at it, he says fight the good fight, keep going and that's what we're to do as well, to build God's church by teaching the truth and encouraging godly living and loving each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to hear your words, uh, to stick to the truth and to love each other genuinely. Amen.